Answer me. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant in anger. You have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake. The late theologian, Dr. James Cone stated, the church is the community that lives on the basis of the radical demands of the gospel by making the gospel message a social, economic, and political reality. It has the courage to take the risk, knowing that at this early stage, it lives in a society that refuses to believe the gospel message. Here at Lakeshore, we have the capacity to take this call seriously and to live out the radical demands of the gospel. The sermon barely scratches the surface of this topic, but we have to start somewhere. Sakina first approached me about this idea to do a joint sermon months ago when she expressed to me her disappointment that too many sermons about race set a low bar for allyship. Sakina, you expressed to me that it often feels like we're not really going anywhere. Can you say more about that? Of course. I believe my disappointment comes from the lack of concrete action taken by Christians towards racial healing and equity. I believe most Christians are anti-racist. I believe most Christians truly be believe in loving their neighbor, but there seems to be a disconnect between the values and practice for many of us. I've been at Lakeshore for just over a year and a half, and I've heard people applaud twice at the end of sermons. One was Paula's sermon from last fall. Let's break down what she said. She talked about being raised on land and growing up in a communal neighborhood where everyone helped each other out. This sounds great. It's reminiscent of a type of community we've lost. But then she talked about setting the table, the dinner table for the help. And I was instantly confused. She just said she was part of a great community that helped each other out. Where did the help come in? Why were they needed? She then proceeded to talk about how when she set the table for everyone, her family and the black people who worked for them, they ate together from that point forward. She also talked about her church integrating. Our congregation was moved to applause, but to be honest, I was almost in tears. Her dinner story didn't mention if her family's workers were paid a fair wage, or if they lived in similar type housing, or if their kids received the same type of education she did. Seeing everyone aroused, around me so aroused at narratives that happened decades ago with no tangible connection to race as it's experienced, or what the church can do to engage in anti-racist work was hard. Nothing changed for me. It sounds like a pretty discouraging experience for you. Like, here we are applauding supposed progress that occurred 50, 60 years ago, decades before you were even born, which in no way speaks to your actual experience as a black woman in 2019, nor does it really speak to the work we as a church need to do right here and right now. Exactly. So we've all heard that thoughts and prayers don't stop gun violence, and the notion is very similar for racism. You not being racist is good, but it doesn't stop racism from occurring. There is actual work we need to do, hard work. And we know that ministry is messy, but it shouldn't stop us from engaging in it when it's hard. 
anti-racist work is deeply unpopular. Take the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for instance, celebrated national hero. Most people actually don't know what he fought for. Many people haven't heard the words that he spoke. His message has been distilled into something more palatable for the masses. But the Reverend Doctor was deeply unpopular. He was under FBI surveillance, and in 1966, a poll showed that 72% of Americans disapproved of him. Some even thought his views were anti-American. Anti-racist work is deeply unpopular. And one of the reasons being is that racism is structural and systemic, meaning that it's seeped into every fiber of our society. We can't just pull out one thing, fix it, and then racism be over. Culture, policies, institutional practices, history and ideology all reinforce racism and other types of oppression. And it's easy to think that we're already doing the work. Some of you have worked in or with communities of color your entire careers. But if you haven't worked explicitly to chip away at some of these structural causes, you really haven't been doing the work. I remember talking with someone, a fellow believer, when the movie Black Panther came out. He saw it and said, I don't really understand why people are making a big deal out of it. You don't have to like Black Panther. You don't have to like that movie. But if you work with black adults and black children day in and day out and don't understand the concept of representation and how powerful it was for black people to see positive images of themselves in that movie, you're not really doing the work and you're not really part of the solution. So the term that we should use is co-conspirator because it talks about what we should be doing instead of allyship and being an ally co-conspirator talks about how we should be part of the good trouble, as the representative John Lewis puts it, planning and organizing the work and not just liking what other people are doing on Facebook, actually being in solidarity with people that are marginalized. John 15 verses 12 through 13 reads, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Co-conspiracy. Kendall, can you speak to some of the work you've done in this area? Okay, so my first instinct is to start listing things off, right? Like, I helped plan the Jesse Washington Memorial. I attended a Black Lives Matter protest in Waco, etc. But I really want to dig deeper than that. Like, sure, I've done a few things here and there, but the truth is that I'm often hesitant to talk about race or preach about race or engage on topics of race, mostly because I'm so afraid of getting it wrong. I don't want to mess it up or accidentally be offensive, and so I often choose silence. Or there, there have even been times when I'm in a conversation where only white people are present and someone makes a demeaning comment or joke about people of color, and I feel really uncomfortable, but I don't say anything because I tell myself that it won't do any good. But I know that that falls short of the allyship bar and certainly the co-conspirator bar. Right, so it makes me think of my own desire to be more than an ally to the LGBTQ community. Like, I'm so excited about our Rainbow Sunday School class, 
but I'm not sure how to be a co-conspirator as a cisgender heterosexual person. I thought about attending the class, but I'm struggling with what I would contribute to that space. I don't want to sit there and just listen to other people's experiences like it's for my entertainment. I know I have to do the work to read and learn from my LGBT brothers and sisters and non-binary siblings to move from labeling myself as an ally to be more of a co-conspirator with them. Right. Co-conspirator -co to me implies that I'm not just lending my support, I'm actually willing to put myself at risk. I'm reminded of the Paulo Fiere quote you shared with me about how solidarity requires that we enter the situation, that solidarity is a radical act. And I keep thinking about the incarnation of Christ, how God's decision to be with us put God at risk. I've been reading the book White Fragility, which, by the way, is a book I think every white person should read. And the author, Robin D'Angelo, is this white woman who works as a diversity trainer, and she explains that in her years of work, she faces the most resistance, not from overtly racist people, but from progressives. Basically what she says is that we've been conditioned to think of racism as being about individual prejudice of one person against another person, when really racism is a complex system and it must be understood as such if we are to make any real headway disrupting racism. Because racism is so against our value system as white progressives, we tend to be the ones who are most resistant to understanding racism and confronting it for what it really is. She writes this, quote, white progressives can be the most difficult for people of color because to the degree that we think we have arrived, we will put our energy into making sure that others see us as having arrived. None of our energy will go into what we need to be doing for the rest of our lives, engaging in ongoing self-awareness continuing education, relationship building, and actual anti-racist practice. White progressives do indeed uphold and perpetrate racism, but our defensiveness and certitude make it virtually impossible to explain to us how we do it." End quote. Her words are reminiscent of MLK's letter from Birmingham jail, in which King states that the greatest stumbling block to black freedom was not the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate. He said, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. So I think the very first step in becoming a co-conspirator is the willingness to admit that our understanding of racism as white people has been shallow and that our acceptance of true equity is lukewarm at best. Yes, which is why the term co-conspirator is perfect to describe how we should be supporting efforts of justice and equity. Allyship allows us to be shallow, to change our Facebook profile pictures and put bumper stickers on our cars, to maintain the illusion that the work is being done. 
But being a co-conspirator means you have responsibility. You have to take ownership of the anti-racist work, that you don't distance yourself from things when they're uncomfortable. I feel like I'm always in the process of learning here. For example, Natalie Webb and I have worked really hard to make Nevertheless She Preached into a space that's welcoming to all and that centers persons of color. However, it wasn't until after we had booked our next venue at First Austin that someone pointed out to me that that venue itself was a white space. It was the sort of space I'm comfortable with because I've grown up in those sort of churches all my life. I didn't stop to process what the space might feel like walking in if you were a person of color. When someone pointed that out to me, I had a choice to make. I could get defensive and say, hold up, I'm not racist. We chose the venue for these very sensible and logical reasons that have nothing to do with color. And I would have felt very justified in saying so. Or I could choose to listen to that feedback and let it inform choices about venue in the future. If I really want to be part of the solution, I have to be open rather than dismissive when people point things out to me that I didn't see before. I don't have to be behaving in a purposefully prejudiced way in order to need correction. I don't have to be behaving in a purposefully prejudiced way in order to need correction. Being white means I inevitably have blind spots because I have grown up in a culture that works to accommodate me and keep me comfortable. So part of what it means to do anti-racist work is to choose that I don't want to be blind anymore. I want to see color and the way color affects the world around me. To do anti-racist work means I have to drop my defensiveness. I need to get beyond the desire to prove myself as a non-racist and good person because that effort at proving myself once again centers me and my experience. Instead, I need to educate myself and not expect people of color to do my education for me. I need to be open to learning the ways our society, our history, and our laws are racist, despite the discomfort that that makes me feel. I need to get over my aversion to discomfort and recognize that the only reason I've been able to live my life relatively free of racial discomfort is because I am white and I grew up in white spaces. This discomfort I feel the more I learn is only a fraction of the actual hardship people of color face every day and are not able to escape. I am free to avoid the discomfort of knowing if I want to, which is a sign and stamp of my privilege. Whew, okay, so how's everybody feeling? <laughs> this isn't a particularly comfortable conversation and I honestly don't think I've felt this nervous to preach in a long time. Me too. To be honest, Kendall, when I approached you about this idea of co-preaching, I was sincere, but I didn't think you would say yes. <laughs> well, I immediately said yes, and then afterwards I was like, oh no, <laughs> what did I just agree to? <laughs> this could be really hard. 
But what I've been telling myself for months now is that entering the discomfort is part of the work. It's what Jesus would do. Enter the real-life dilemmas people face and not back away. So now that we've made ourselves uncomfortable, what now? We did not want to simply leave the hour of worship with feelings of white guilt or general despair. How do we make the radical demands of the gospel a reality? We know Jesus took real risks in his ministry, but what does that mean in our own context to follow the Jesus way? First, we need to look at what we consume and see what voices are missing and add them in. And I use consume in the most broadest of terms. Are you reading things by people that don't look like you? Are you reading books to your kids and grandkids with characters that don't look like them? When you hear or read news stories about communities of color, are they being reported by communities of color or people that know those communities well enough to accurately represent them? Think about your sources of information and take steps to diversify them. As Christians, we use the song, be careful little eyes what you see and be careful little ears what you hear to remind our children to consume godly things. But are we limiting that to how one group of people sees the world? I mean, what if we named an all-white culture as explicitly ungodly? Because all-white does not reflect the diversity of our Creator. Like, I've been thinking, was my education at a Christian university, learning from an all-white faculty, truly a Christian education? How could it be if I was missing such a significant part of the body of Christ? When we start to think critically about who is present and who isn't, it's incredible to see how pervasive these issues are. Thinking about my own upbringing in the church, the only black preacher I knew of was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I lived in England and he died years ago. My early churches were very white. Another thing to think about are the spaces you occupy. Do you socialize with people that only look like you? Who are the members of the organizations you belong to? When you go to Lula James, do you go past there on Elm Street to see the rest of the street? Do you alternate between the Waco Family Y and the Doris Miller YMCA, known to some people as the White Y and the Black Y? If you're always in spaces where you are the majority, consider the places you can enter where you can learn and be in solidarity with people who don't look like you. Thinking about the questions we pose is part of doing one's own internal work. You have to be responsible for your own learning about race and racism. It seems to me we can also think about how those of us in positions with visibility can step down to make room for others. I know that one thing that really made an impression on me was the first year that Natalie and I were planning Nevertheless She Preached, because when we invited one particular white woman as a guest speaker, she asked first if we had also invited women of color because she had made it a practice not to accept speaking engagements if women of color weren't also being featured. It really made me stop and think about how many times I've accepted opportunities for myself without stopping to ask whether others have been invited to the table. We've even seen this recently at the Oscars where one actress pledged to only producing projects where 50% of the crew were female. 
If you're claiming to do the work, you need to think about how you're bringing people along with you. Who sits on your board of directors? Who are the members of your advisory councils? Are you relying on your own perceptions of the work that needs to be done in communities? Or are you letting the people you're trying to serve actually take the lead? With all the economic development happening in Waco, have we stopped to consider how this impacts our lower income residents? Are they being brought along as our community changes and grows? A powerful quote by Leela Watson, an indigenous Australian activist states, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. The only way you can do anti-racist work is to be in relationship, in reciprocal relationship with people of color. Kendall, will you share some of the ways Lakeshore as a faith community can work together? Well, when I think about Lakeshore, particularly during the season of Lent, where so much of the liturgical language centers around repentance and death, I am asking myself, what do we need to repent from, specifically as white people and specifically as people of privilege? And I find myself asking, what part of us needs to die? And I can tell you one answer that keeps coming to mind for me regarding Lakeshore is that we need to die to our white savior complex, you know? I think it's so easy for a helper social justice congregation like ours to see ourselves as the rescuers who dive in to help or fix the underprivileged, which is just another form of hierarchical othering in which we, the elite, assist them, the downtrodden. So what would it mean if, as a church, we no longer viewed our calling as one of being saviors, but rather one of being co-laborers? And what if, like Christ, we found a way to stand on level ground with our neighbors? In order to try to help this movement forward, Ross and I have been working on a contemplative Wednesday night prayer series for the season of Lent. And I find that sometimes contemplative practices and meditation can be used more as escapism. This notion that I can insulate myself from the stresses of the world on my private little yoga mat and not have to deal with it. But what I want to do is look at how the practice of prayer can move us deeper into the world and deeper into anti-racist work with grounding and courage. And then next, post-Easter, we're going to have a Wednesday night seminar series on unpacking privilege with different dynamic speakers each week. And I really hope to see an above-average attendance <laughs> during that series because we all have a lot left to learn no matter how long we've been doing this work. And then as a pastor, I think part of what I want my congregation to know is that if you are a person who experiences marginalization in this place, I want you to hear me say that you can tell me. I want to hear your stories. And if you're a white person trying to explain to me how you experienced this sermon as reverse racism, I'll listen and then I'll explain to you why you're wrong. <laughs> but, it, but if you're a person of color or a person who hasn't been fully welcomed here, I want to be open to knowing what you really are experiencing, even if 
it challenges me. If this sermon has been uncomfortable for you, we're okay with that. <laughs> Ministry is messy, and we shouldn't shy away from what's true, what is noble, what is right. Anti-racist work and anti-oppression work in general are all part of Jesus' commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. We are travelers on a journey, fellow pilgrims on the road. We are here to help each other, walk the mile and bear the load. I will weep when you are weeping. When you laugh, I'll laugh with you. I will share your joy and sorrow till we've seen this journey through. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. Amen. Amen.